All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. I, um, I was saying in first service, like last Monday morning, as I was uh, heading into the office, Jill, my lovely new bride, um, she asked me, which passage are you preaching on this week? I said, Bathsheba. And she looked at me with the most serious eyes possible. And she said, don't make any inappropriate jokes about this one. I said, moi? <laughs> when have I ever towed the line when it comes to something that's inappropriate? I didn't know. Solomon, the wisest man ever, he said, he who finds a, good, a wife finds a good thing. And that's true. She's been a very helpful filter for me, looking at, no, you can't say that joke. That one's actually illegal in several states. Uh, so that has been a blessing uh, for her. I'm going to probably last here a lot longer because of Jill. So, uh, but in all seriousness, we are, we're touching uh, on some sensitive subjects. Uh, we did last week and we will continue uh, to do this week. This is part two of David and Bathsheba. If you didn't hear the, the first, if you weren't here last week, Labor Day weekend, a lot of folks out and about, uh, if you go on line uh, under our sermons tab. You can listen to the sermons on audio uh, and download the PowerPoints to, to walk through there because I don't know how to talk without a PowerPoint. They're just one and the same. And uh, Or you can download it on our, uh, go to the podcast app and search Peninsula Grace Sermons and you can hear those online um, as well. Um, but we are, we are touching on some difficult subjects and we're going to try to be sensitive, obviously, and appropriate for my wife's sake. Um, and we know some of you are sitting here with your children and these things, we're bumping up against sexual sin. We're bumping up against assault. We're going to talk today about babies dying. I mean, this is not easy stuff. But here's the reality. Sin and Satan are coming. They're seeking to kill and destroy. What we're doing here is not a game. Life and death is, is what's at stake. And so we recognize that we've got to deal with these issues that are in this world, that are in our lives, and see what does God have to say about them. So we want to press into that this morning. Our series, if you haven't been with us, is called The King of Kings. We're looking at God's work through the first three kings of Israel, and we've been looking at the second king, David, uh, for the last little while here. And what we discovered last week in our story with David and Bathsheba is that it turns out David is a taker just like everyone else. Uh, we, we saw his abuse of uh, power when, when the story, we, we talked about this pattern of seeing, wanting, and taking, that David saw Bathsheba, he wanted Bathsheba, and so he took Bathsheba, and he took her in a way where he treated her like an object, slept with her non-consensually, and impregnates her, and then in an attempt to conceal his sin, takes Uriah, tries to peg the pregnancy on him by getting him to sleep with Bathsheba, and when she wouldn't, he kills him, putting him out in harm's way in battle. And what we saw then was this Nathan, the prophet, he approaches uh, David with God's word, and God says, son, I gave, and I gave, and I gave to you. I gave you everything you'd ever need, so why then did you take Uriah and take Bathsheba? And therefore, he said, I will now take from you. And God gave David his consequence, and four of David's sons would die because of what he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. This morning, what we're going to see is David's response to this confrontation of his sin from Nathan, the voice of God. We're going to see in 2 Samuel 12 and also in Psalm 51, David's response and what our response ought to be as well. Um, anybody in this room today perfect? Like in life, you're just 10 out of 10 material. You've never seen, you are as holy as God is himself. Anybody, hands up in the air? 
nice and we all want to see you so we know how to avoid you when the lightning comes. <laughs> Smite thee, foul liar, right? Well, we've all sinned against God, for the Bible tells us so. That's, that's not the question this morning. The question on the table is not have we sinned, when we sin, how will we respond? That's the question. We're going to see this morning that each of us have a path we can take. We have two choices, two paths. And we looked at this, and we looked with Saul uh, back in 2 Corinthians 7. It, it says this, when we were talking about Saul, we, we looked at this verse. It says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The Apostle Paul lays out the two paths that are in front of us. And what we've seen is this worldly grief. We saw Saul, the first king, choose worldly grief, and it killed him. What we're going to see today in our story is David responds to his sin with godly grief, and it saves him. Now, here's what I would ask for us to do this morning. Hold up this word that we read from God as an x-ray to your soul and ask yourself, which path am I on? We're going to see six markers that indicate which path David was on, and we asking ourselves as we walk this road together this morning, which, which path am I on? So let's, let's get to work. First, first one is godly grief confesses. Godly grief confesses, whereas worldly grief conceals. Now, when he receives rebuke from God through the prophet Nathan, David responds with six simple words. Look at what he says to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. David owns it. Now, what could he have done as king? When this prophet comes, he could have continued to try to conceal. He could have looked at Nathan and said, off with his head, and thrown his body onto the pile of Uriah and the other valiant men who he had killed in his foolish tactics at war. But what does David do here? He doesn't do that. He owns it completely, calls it for what it is, because that's godly grief. See, godly grief is not blame shifting. It is not excuse making, nor is it sin softening. We don't just say, oh, I made an oopsie, a mistake. He calls it for what it is. That is a sin against the Lord. What do we see with Saul when he disobeyed in 1 Samuel? He was confronted by a prophet too. But what did he say to that prophet? I did obey. And it was these guys. It was my men who didn't do it. He blame shifts. He makes excuses where David initially does show some worldly grief, doesn't he? He tries to conceal his sin, tries to cover up his sin against Bathsheba, which actually just makes it worse. But now when he's confronted head on by the prophet, He shows the kind of grief that'll save him. Godly grief confesses. The second one we'll see here is godly grief is God-centered. And by the way, there's uh, notes, fill in the blanks in your um, bulletin if you want to follow along with these. Uh, Godly grief is God-centered, whereas worldly grief is self-centered. Look at his words. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, wait a second. Like if I'm David or if I'm Bathsheba or Uriah here, I'm going, um, I can think of a couple other people you sinned against, right? Hashtag me too? Is that, too, is that, is that, was, was that one of the jokes that Jill was saying? To, okay, sorry about that. Erase that one, Ian. We'll take that, we'll take that right out. Um, did he just forget to mention them? Like, did he forget? No, actually, he doubles down in, in Psalm 51. Look at what he says. Against you, talking to God, and you alone have I sinned. Now, wait a second. He's wronged a lot of other human beings in the process. How could this just be against the Lord? Is he just apathetic toward what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah? No. This is a principle that we need to pay attention to. That God's, David's ultimate problem was a God problem. You see, earlier Nathan said to him, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And God, through Nathan himself, says, You have despised me. 
John Piper, as he so often does, he says it very well. He says, sin by definition in the Bible is not wronging another person. Now hold on and hear him out. It is assaulting the glory of God, rebelling against God. Sin by definition is a vertical phenomenon. Now, this is not, hear me on this, this is not to minimize the murder of Uriah, the assault that he had against Bathsheba, or the death of the child that he causes. It doesn't make them less horrible. It actually makes them more horrible and puts them in their proper categories. Why do you despise another? Because ultimately you despise God. When you murder, what are you doing? You're killing someone who bears the image of Yahweh. And what you're actually saying in your heart is, I'd kill him if I could. That's at the root of the problem. And Jesus actually said, you can't separate these two. To be God-centered is to be other-centered. John, in 1 John, he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's not possible to love God and despise your brother. If you're despising your brother, you are despising your maker. And when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment, singular? You know what he answered with? Two of them. He said, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you despise your neighbor, you're actually despising God. So his ultimate problem was the sin he had committed against his God. Now, to help us think this through, think for a moment. Pretend that you're a child. For some of us, this may be a shorter trip, imaginatively. <laughs> you know who you are. You get caught stealing your sister's toy, right? This giant inflatable baseball that looks awesome. You steal it and you punch her in the face. Now, what happens? You get spanked or sent to your room, no dessert, have to give the toy back, have to say you're sorry. Now you find yourself in your room crying. Ask yourself, child, why are you crying? There are two reasons you might be crying. One would be the worldly grief. You're crying. I'm crying because I got caught. I'm crying because I didn't get dessert. I'm crying because I don't have that giant inflatable baseball anymore. I'm crying because I'm sitting isolated, exiled in my room without my cookies, my Oreos. <laughs> what is this self-centered, right? That's a, that's a, that's the worldly grief says, I'm sorry what happened to me, whereas godly grief would say, the reason I'm crying is because I hurt my sister, because I stole her giant inflatable baseball that she loves, because I rebelled against my parents, because I violated their trust you know what's going on in the head of every four-year-old when they sin. It's others-centered. You, you see the difference? And that, this is what's happening. King Saul, he also was sad when he sinned, right? Many times. But what did he say back when he disobeyed God in 1 Samuel 15? Look at his words. That one is others-centered, the other one is self-centered. King Saul says, I have sinned. Same start as David. I have sinned, yet... Honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Interesting language. What does he say? See, see Saul's concern here was don't make me look bad in front of those guys. He wants to save face. His grief was self-centered. Let me ask you, after you got caught in a sin, are, are, is your grief about how your sin has affected you or your God, or others, the ones that you've been called to love that you hurt and despised? Are you grieving for the way that affected your spouse and your children and those around you? The victims of your sin or, or just yourself? David, he shows his others-centered godly grief in the way that he mourns not for himself, 
but for his son. See, God promises the child, because of David's sin, will die. And then he comes to God, and look at what he says back in our story here, 2 Samuel 12. He says, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. He's, his mind's on the baby. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And for a week, he fasts and petitions his God to spare the life of his son. Other-centered. And after a week, God does not change his mind. The baby dies. So he stops mourning, which confuses his servants. Why did you stop now? This is usually when the mourning period would start. But he says this, he goes, while this child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. I, I still had a, a chance to, as I petitioned for my son, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He, he, can, he owns the consequences and says, now we're moving forward. And then he says these words, and you may have heard this in, in different contexts. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Talking about the baby. One day I'll go to him. He's not coming back but one day I'll go to him. Now this brings up the heavy topic, where do babies go when they die? Right, kind of the classic question that we ask. Now, we want to be clear here. The Bible is, doesn't, it doesn't just give us chapter and verse on this. This isn't just a slam dunk case. And, and this passage, that's not what this passage is centrally trying to teach us in the story. But it certainly leaves the door open. You hear the language. One day I'm going to him. I'm going to my, and not just that I'll die, right? This, there's deeper language going on here than that. So what do we do with that? Here's what we know about God. We know that our God is a just God. He will always do what's right. Always. We also know that our God is a loving God and a good God. And sometimes those things really seem to come into contradiction. And we got to leave a lot of these things in his hands. Babies, the unborn, or the mentally challenged. What about those who have never heard the gospel in their language before? What do we do with those categories? All I can say is that I'm glad I'm not the judge. And I'm resting in the fact that a good, just God is in charge. And here's what I do know. The blood of Jesus is very powerful. And his resurrection is very life-giving. Godly grief is others-centered. The fourth thing we see here, godly grief desires an inward change, whereas worldly grief desires outward change. So, godly grief is concerned about myself. Worldly grief is concerned about my circumstances. Worldly grief would say, if, if the reason I'm sad is because things aren't right. If people started treating me different, woe is me. If things were going better at work, if the weather would just stay like it was this summer, everything would be good, right? What are we saying? My circumstances are what the problem is. Whereas, you know what godly repentance says? In the words of the great theologian of the 80s and 90s, I'm starting with the man in the mirror. Woo! Make a change. True repentance makes a change. It's a change of mind. My mind. Repentance, by definition, is a change of my mind, my heart, my attitude. You, you want to hear an amazing, we could chew on Strong's Concordance definition for a week. Listen to what it has to say about what true repentance is. It's especially the change of mind of those who have begun to abhor their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life so that it embraces both a recognition of sin and sorrow for it and hearty amendment 
That means hardly change, that word. The tokens and effects of which are good deeds. That's a strong mic drop, right? And we could unpack that for quite a while. Anybody here living that every day? Like that's how you approach your sin? I know I don't. That's the call, though. That's what repentance looks like. Now, in Psalm 51, which is really cool, it actually says at the beginning of this psalm in the Bible, it's a, it says what it is. It's a psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So it gives us the context. This is the time in which David was writing this, which is really helpful. And look at what he says in the heart response to Nathan confronting him with his sin. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out the stain of my sin. You see the desire to change here. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. See, he, he wants this to be cleared, but, but he goes beyond that. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit in me. I know, don't just forgive me, change me. Something needs to change in my life. And then he says, do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now I want to point out here, this is Old Testament language. In a day and age, I call it, it was, the Holy Spirit was a little bit more like in and out burger. He would come in and he'd go out. He would come upon somebody and then he would leave somebody. And in today, in the church, in Christ, his spirit is unioned with ours. We are one in Christ and his spirit never leaves us. So as a believer, secure in Christ, we don't have to worry about him taking his spirit from us. But the heart here is the same. David's saying, I want to change. God, change me. Now, we all have faced sins in our life that we want to change. I walked a long road in the struggle with pornography. And I'll tell you, I wanted to change. And I came to my God and I said, God, I don't want this anymore. I want to be different. I want to, I want to make a change. And the next day, it's the same thing. What we see here with David is not enough just to want to change. We've got to have the ability to change. It's got to go deeper than that. David didn't just need outward behavior modification. David needed a heart transplant. He said, give me a clean heart. Give me your spirit. And the good news is, on the path of repentance, that's exactly what we're given. The fifth one is that godly grief produces change and life, whereas worldly grief produces death. There was this covenant that God made. He said, there's a day coming when I'm going to not just give you the desire to change, but the ability to change. And in Ezekiel, the prophet says this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'm taking out the old heart that wouldn't obey me, that wouldn't listen to me, that wouldn't follow me. And what am I going to give you in its place? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says, you will never, your sinful heart will never obey me, will never be good enough. It's not just about improving. It's about a life transplant. I'm going to put my spirit in you, a spirit that will obey me. And we have that in Jesus. We'll see that at the end of our time together. Last, last road marker on the path of repentance. Godly grief saves while worldly grief leaves you lost. Saul's worldly grief led to death, to fear, to jealousy of David, to isolation from more and more people in his life. And the curtain closes on Saul's life in this scene in 1 Samuel 31. It says, therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell on it. He had been badly wounded in battle. The enemy is surrounding him that he could have defeated had he walked by faith. And as he sees them closing in, he falls on his own sword and his life is ended. Saul's worldly grief led to death, very literally. Whereas David's godly grief leads to 
Forgiveness and salvation. Look at Nathan's response to his words, I've sinned against the Lord, verse 13. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. There's forgiveness language. And you shall not die. There's salvation language. You're not going to die, which is exactly what the Mosaic law called for. Leviticus 20 says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, which is exactly what David did, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. David should have died. The Lord saved him because of his repentance. Forgiveness of sins and a salvation from death, but, but... But there are always consequences. There are always consequences to our sins. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. When you stole your sister's giant inflatable baseball... There's forgiveness from your parents, right? They probably won't hold that grudge against the four-year-old until the day they graduate, probably. But they're still not getting dessert that night. They still got a sore hiney. They still find themselves in their room, right? There is consequence for our actions. God forgives David, but he says, your child will die. And unlike Saul, David accepts those consequences. Now, I don't want to rush past the loss of a pain of, uh, the, the pain of the loss of a child here. I don't want to dwell on it for a long time, but I don't want to rush past it either. There are many of us in this room today who have, who have suffered loss, and maybe that specific kind of loss. And while there's no magic wand to wave it all away, we want to hear what God has to say about this. I love the words from Jen Wilkin. She's a mother of the way, and she says this, God knows what it is to lose a child. If there's anybody who can empathize with you this morning, it's God himself. He knows what it is to lose a child all too well, his only child so that David could be forgiven. The loss of his child is the reason David could be forgiven at all. The, so that you and I could be forgiven. God can identify with your pain. But what do we do with the death, death of this child? The loss of an innocent child who, who did not take the life of Uriah, who, who did not take Bathsheba, whose was not his to take. And we, some of us are sitting here in this room, hearing this story, and we're asking the tough question, is this a story about me personally? Is this about my sin and why I face that consequence? The loss of a child means that I sinned against God. And this is why it is so important for us to read the Bible the right way. To be a student, a workman approved. You see, we've talked about this principle before when it comes to stories in the Bible, narratives. Stories are our descriptions of what happened then. It's a story of, of what happened. It's describing. It's not necessarily prescribing why what happened to you happened. So otherwise, we're going, to make, we're going to come up with some crazy, crazy one-to-ones if we go down that road. There are no simple answers here, but I'm here to tell you this morning that the loss of a child or barrenness or, or some other suffering that we may have faced doesn't just mean that we've sinned against God and he's punishing us for that. The loss of a child does not equal sin. Our God is not a God of karma. Praise the Lord. Still, we sit on this verse, the Lord afflicted the child. We have to sit on the uncomfortable tension that God killed this baby. What do we do with that? Three things that we've got to remember about our God. 
Why does God kill an innocent child in David's place? Well, three things. Number one, God's holiness demands death as a consequence for sin. We just saw the law. The law demands a life for a life. This is who God is. This is in his DNA. The wages of sin is death. When he said to Adam and Eve, you eat of the the tree that I told you not to, you will die. You can't get away from that. God's justice and holiness demands it. But you might be going, that's all well and good, but this was David's sin. (laughs) He should have been the one that died. This wasn't the baby's sin. Something to consider. What is the nature of death? Hebrews says each of us will die at some point in time. God knows it. Job says he knows the exact month that each of us will go. But if what Paul says is true, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To not be here is to be home with him. And if, if, if now we don't know, again, we're not speaking definitively, but if it's true, what this passage seems to indicate toward, that it knows where this child is, isn't it infinitely better for this child to be with the Lord than here on this earth? Think about this from the baby's perspective. He's going down, looking down here at all, and he goes, y'all are crying for me, but I'm good. I'm with Jesus. I'm having pity on you guys. It looks brutal down there. Again, this doesn't relieve the tension, but it does help us to reframe it a little bit. And listen, we as limited humans, we will always wrestle with the problems of evil. And we will never fully understand God's ways. The same way that your child will never fully understand your ways when they're a little one. And your evils against them of bedtime and less sugar. Right? Why would you cause me to suffer like this, mom and dad? We don't understand the ways of our parents. We don't understand the ways of God. They're higher and, for the record, much better than our ways. We have to rest in that even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's hard. Second thing we see here is God's mercy provides salvation for us at the expense of another. God's mercy for us provides salvation for the expense of another. He's looking down the line and he's showing us, he's showing us something here. How is David saved? Because of an innocent child who took his place. And who does that point us toward? Where, where does that road marker leave us? This text makes us scream, that's not fair. And God says, that's exactly right. You should have been the one up on the cross, not my innocent child. But I sent him because I love you. And finally, we see here God's faithfulness preserves his promises. God had made this promise to David. We talked about it. You and your line on the throne will last forever. Remember we said it will always, it will go on and on and on. A king from your line will rule forever. And we see as the story ends, him keeping this promise. David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and he called his name Solomon, who of course we know will be the third king in our story, preserves the line of the Messiah. Now the word Solomon sounds like the Hebrew word replacement and the word peace, shalom. And what we see here from God is his replacement for the child that died. I will, I will give you a substitute from my own goodness. And God keeping his promise that one day the prince of peace will come from David's line through Solomon. And just like God replaced Remember, Saul was the, the, the king of the people's choosing, and he replaced Saul with David, the king of his own heart, of his choosing. Here he's replacing the child born from David's sin and David's selfish ways, the child he provides through his own grace, preserving the line of the coming Messiah. 
He says, I'm going to keep this thing going, David, but it's in spite of you, not because of you. I wanted all Israel to know it. The other name that, that Solomon's actually given here says, the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. We got a couple of Jedidiahs in our church. Jedidiah means beloved of Yahweh. I don't think we have any Solomons, do we? Beloved of Yahweh. And this points us again to the true son of David, doesn't it? Because what did Jesus say to, what did God say to Jesus when he was raised out of his baptism? He said, this is my son whom I love. The beloved of Yahweh points toward our coming Savior. So what do we do with this? What we see in this text this morning is clearly David's been called a man after God's own heart or a man of God's choosing. And we, we see very obviously here, this does not mean that David's a perfect man. Far, far from it. But what we do see is it means David's the kind of man who, when confronted with his wrong, does what is right. The difference between David and Saul is not bad guy, good guy. It's not sinner, saint. It's that one repents and the other one doesn't. It's godly grief versus worldly grief. And that's the dividing line between the believer in Jesus and the rest of the world. Amen? It's not that we're perfect. No. That's the whole point. It's it's just that we're repentant. That we put our faith in Christ. David says, what you want from me, he closes Psalm 51 saying this, "You you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. He says, you don't want the outward. You don't want me just going through the motions. Here's what God desires. Here's what God will accept. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Two things for us to take home this morning in light of the text that we've read. Number one, step into the light. Confess, don't conceal. I'm here to tell you this morning, confession is terrifying whether it be to God or another. When I had to step into the light in my wrestle with pornography, that was a scary journey. I didn't know how other people would respond. I didn't know what that road would look like. And neither did David. But the first person he confesses to is his God. Again, Psalm 32, written in response to this, he says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. You're hiding in the darkness. You're concealing, trying to cover up what you've done. But you're tracking with David here that you're wasting away. It's killing you. Look what he says. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you, first to his God. And I stopped trying to hide my guilt, took off the fig leaf. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. He says, when I stepped into the light, you know what I experienced? Go back up to the top of the psalm. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And I can tell you, I've walked that road with David, and when I confessed, it was so much better. The the freedom, the the forgiveness, the joy that followed of living comfortably exposed in my sin was way better than hiding in the shadows. So we confess first to our God. If you come clean to your God, David confesses his sin to his God. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Have we owned that we've despised our God, rebelled against him? But then it doesn't just stop with our God. We also confess to others. Notice here that David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. He doesn't just confess it to God, he confesses it to another. 
And this is a commandment we have in the New Testament, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We're called into this. And there's two kinds of confession that need to happen in our life. The first one's for reconciliation. Is there someone that you need to go to that you've hurt, that you've despised, that you need to make things right with? You need to confess what you've done and own it completely, full stop. What about for accountability? Is there someone in your life that you need to come to and, and say, I need, I need a brother or a sister to walk this road with me that I'm confessing to regularly. The next three weeks, we're going to hear testimonies from people in our body who have seen the joy of community. We need community. We need it for confession and accountability. We need it for encouragement. We need it for discipleship. There's someone in your life regularly, and, and yes, your spouse is going to be that to some degree, but you also need a same-sex brother or a same-sex sister that you can talk to on a regular basis about where you're at, to be real. Step into the light. Number two, approach the throne of grace. We're going to step into this time after I'm done with a, a time of communion, and we're going to answer why there's forgiveness when, when there's confession, because of his broken body and spilt blood. And we, it takes me back to Hebrews chapter 4. Look at these words. It says, for the word of God is living and active. Listen, the prophet Nathan's probably not coming to your doorstep today to confront you. Pretty safe bet. But we do have the word of the Lord, and look at what it says it does. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's what happens. You don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads you, Amen. It discerns our thoughts and our, attention, and our intentions. And then he says in verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. One day we're going to stand before the judge to give an account. We cannot ultimately hide these sins from God. But here's the good news. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Here's why we can confess. Here's why there's joy for those of us who come clean. Because there's a high priest in heaven who's interceding for us right now in front of the Father. And his name is Jesus. And here's who this Jesus is for us. We do not have a high priest, verse 15, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus was tempted just like David was. But unlike David, he didn't give in. Unlike David, he didn't succumb. And this is our only hope, not in King David, but in King Jesus, in the King of Kings. And we said that we have to have the ability to change what Jesus offered us in absorbing our sins and his death on the cross and then raising to new life again was to give us a new heart, to give us a new life. It was his life and his heart, the one that will always obey the Father. That's the reason we have hope today, because of the risen Jesus. So what's the conclusion? Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We humbly yet boldly approach the, the throne, the gifted response we talked about earlier in song, to the king of kings. And what we find, we don't have to pretend that we're not sinners, you guys. We can be free to confess it, confess it to the depths. But what we find is that we have a, sal a savior from that sin, amen? It's not that we're not sinners, it's that we have a savior, the innocent one who died in the place of us, the David in the story, the beloved of Yahweh, that we might be saved. Each of us have sinned against the Lord. That's not the question. The question is, which one are we going to choose? 
Are we going to go worldly grief or are we going to go godly grief? I want us to close this time. I often, I often say a prayer to close this out. But what I want us to do is I want us to, uh, would you stand up with me? Um, we're going we're gonna to pray together. And we're about to step into a time of communion where we, where we remember Jesus' spilled blood, his broken body for us. And so what we want to do in response to that, because we have this great high priest, we're free to hold fast to our confession. We're going to read through most of Psalm 51 together, and I want us to pray this to our God. Free to confess what joy for those who will confess their sins to their God, that we will find forgiveness in the, through our repentance and a new life in Jesus. Would you, would you pray this with me out loud together? Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night, against you and you alone have I sinned, I have done what is evil in your sight." You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow." Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. Amen.